Good morning. morning. Today's scripture is from Daniel chapter 3, verses 20 through 25. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is that like the son of the gods. Thank you, Terry. How are we doing this morning, church? I'm pretty great as well. This morning, we'll be looking at, as you just heard, um, one of the, I think, more well-known stories in the Old Testament, commonly referred to as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the Fiery Furnace. You might likely know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't their real names, but that their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their Hebrew names each declare something about who God is. And their new Babylonian names instead point to one of the Babylonian gods. And if you're reading along with me this morning in your own Bibles, you might notice that I will not be using their Babylonian names when they come up in Scripture. Instead, when their names are listed, I'll, I'll, I'll use their names in Hebrew. This might not seem like a big deal to you, and if it does, we can talk about it afterwards. It, truthfully, it's, 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 it's not a huge deal, but I think there is some value in our willingness to keep our God in our everyday language. When God is removed from everyday places, in this case like our names, or maybe in common places like our schools, there are consequences. There are not consequences like we'll be punished if, if we don't, but there are consequences because people will be missing out on the name of God. The name of God has a special type of power. We're told to not use the Lord's name in vain in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and the Ten Commandments, but I hope that doesn't make us afraid to not use the name of the Lord at all. Based on the bold statement that's made by these three men, I will see later this morning, I think it's clear that they never forgot what their names stood for, who their names stood for. You don't have to do this ever, and I I don't know if I'd recommend never using their Babylonian names again. There's a really uh, catchy old acapella song that uses their Babylonian names. But at least for this morning, I'll use God's name where I can. In the past two weeks, we've considered two different responses to culture. Manasseh, 
as you've heard a, a number of times, conformed to the surrounding cultures at the expense of God. And it had devastating effects on God's people. But for 55 years, it seemed like things were really working out for him. And last week we looked at Daniel, who lived during the early days of Israel's exile. He lived directly in those surrounding cultures that Manasseh was conforming to. But Daniel was resolved that he would not be defiled. Sure, Daniel didn't dramatically influence the government, but he lived among the Babylonian Empire, and he was not influenced. What are we to do when our culture comes into conflict with our God? I think it's beyond clear that Daniel's model is our solution, to demonstrate faithfulness to God regardless of the circumstances. If things are going well in our world or if things are going poorly, regardless if it feels like if we're in the promised land or if it feels like we're in Babylon. And it's one thing to do this in our private life, like we saw last week. We saw Daniel and his friends make spiritual decisions regarding food and drink and they were not going to waver based on these beliefs. Those are, those are private decisions. But what about when these spiritual, spiritual commitments become public issues? It's one thing to rise above the culture when what we're disagreeing with is, is in the other nations, is on the other side of the country. But what about when it's right here in our communities? What about when it's right here on our doorsteps? What about when you are called by name to give account for your beliefs? And you're asked to break or be broken. I pray that we never find ourselves in an environment like that, but I'm sure people like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were praying the same things. Next week, we'll turn our eyes once more to Manasseh and his experience in Israel to see how his story ends. But as we'll see this morning, looking once more at the Israelites who were in exile, their lack of proximity to the temple has no effect on their faithfulness to God. Their lack of proximity to the temple has absolutely no effect on their faithfulness to God. And no matter how close to the fire they're brought, no matter how close to the fire we're brought, we can always remember that God has been here before. I invite you to join me this morning in Daniel chapter 3 for the encounter with the golden statue and the fiery furnace. Because even in a public setting, last week we were in the private setting, even in a public setting, these exiled Israelites will not defile themselves. They will not conform. And they don't protest, they don't push back, and they don't retreat either. They rise above their culture, especially when the fire comes, and trust that God's going to take care of the rest. When the Israelite youths were brought into Babylon, they were introduced to these new ideas and these new beliefs. We looked at that last week. But even though they would be submerged in this new environment, they made private personal decisions that they would not participate in things that opposed their spiritual convictions. And as time goes on, and Israel has become more acclimated to Babylon, it's time for those personal decisions to become public proclamations. This is where we... Behind our, our Israelites in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together sent to gather the satraps and the, uh, and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the declaration of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You might see a common theme in that reading, what King Nebuchadnezzar had done, and all these officials are celebrating what King Nebuchadnezzar had done. This, this is a really inter- interesting introduction to this scene, because when you think about it, this is not out of the ordinary. This is exactly how we should expect Babylon to behave. In the Old Testament and, and throughout the ancient Near East, empires and kingdoms, each engaged in uh, different levels of spiritual practices, worshiping and sacrificing to a whole host of, uh, uh, of their own gods. But a common theme among all of them is that elevation of the ruler to this, to this special place. Egypt especially entertained this practice that the pharaoh was truly an intermediary with the gods, or in some case, even, even a god himself. And so when people worship the empire, when people worship the government, the social authorities, it's no surprise that they're willing to worship their images. They're willing to obey and do what they say. And this is what happened in verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's not surprising to see worldly people celebrating worldly success. What might be a little surprising is that worldly people are doing worldly things, but they're punishing people who aren't going to participate in the same worldly things. It might be surprising to see the Babylonians threatening those who oppose them with fire when it comes to internal spiritual matters. After all, the faith of these Israelites, as we saw last week, hasn't caused any harm. If anything, Their belief in God has helped out the Babylonians because they're eating healthier food. So it's kind of surprising that these people who aren't causing any trouble are suddenly about to be punished. It's not that surprising, honestly, because the Babylonian rulers recognize that if God is in charge, then man is not. And if people worship God, then they're not worshiping the king. And I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but in that reading, it sure sounds like what's going to happen one day when Jesus comes back, when all peoples of all nations are going to hear the horns and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And for the most part, like we demonstrated last week, Babylon has already been working to overwhelm and acclimate these new Israelites into their culture, into their society. And if they haven't been indoctrinated into the Babylonian mindset already, Maybe a little fire might help with their persuasion. Well, don't worry. We haven't forgotten about Hananiah, 
Mishael and Azariah. In fact, some of the Babylonians also have not forgotten about them either. Someone notices their behavior and reports it to the king in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. On to verse 12, there were certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these men, O king, paid no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did you catch this part? Someone notices their behavior. Someone notices their lifestyle, and they try to punish them for it. But they don't just notice their behavior. They notice that there were people placed in government who were standing by their religious convictions, people who were allowing their faith to influence their occupations. So in an effort to create this separation between the temple and the state, they try to undermine them by taking this news to the king. And unsurprisingly, this angers King Nebuchadnezzar. He just built a statue to himself. And our text says it sends him into a furious rage, and he puts them to the test and gives them a chance to reconsider. In verse 14, Is it true, O Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, or every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? The problem isn't that Babylon does not know about God. It's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar has heard of their God. The problem is that Babylon truly believes that their system, what they have in place, is better than what God has done. And they might think that their system, their government, their structure has no room for God. And if people like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are going to keep God elevated above the king and above the laws, then that obviously undermines the authority of the culture. And in one of the most defiant moments in all of the Old Testament is their response to these threats. You might be familiar in verse 16. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that line. We have no need to answer you. It's kind of funny. They say, O king, several times, acknowledging that he is the king of Babylon, but their, their response has absolutely nothing to do with what the king has done. The statement shows that they believe that there is something greater than the Babylonian king. It's them saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you already know how we live. We don't have to answer this question because you already know what we're going to say. You've seen what we believe. We don't have to answer you in this matter. We'll let our actions speak for ourselves. That's, that's what they're saying. We'll come back to that idea 
in just a little bit. And their response turns Nebuchadnezzar's anger into fury. On in verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, as we read earlier, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Now, I know we read it earlier, and you might be very familiar with this story. You might be tempted to mentally jump to the end, where God inevitably rescues them from the fire. But let's pretend for just a moment that our God is not there in the fire. Even if they perished in the fire, they were still faithful. And this is an outcome that they were fully acceptable with, putting their life on the line for their faith. It might sound kind of crazy to us, how, how, how would they be able to make such a decision? But they've accepted the fact that they're in exile. They've accepted the fact that they're in a place that is not their home, that they're in a temporary place. And that can't be said for all the Israelites. A large portion of the book of Isaiah is written to Israelites who had grown to like Babylon, and they'd grown to like their new homes, and they'd grown to like their new jobs, and the idea of trekking back across the wilderness, that didn't sound, that didn't sound that good to them. But for Hananiah, for Mishael, and for Azariah, Babylon's not their home. Yet, in a display of power and authority, as we read earlier, God rescues these three men from, from the fire. A fourth figure, like the sons of the gods, as, as the Babylonians saw, was in there with them. And this display influences, influences the king, if we were to read the end of the chapter, and it ends up shaping some of the political world, too. That's that political transformation that we've been looking for over the past few weeks. Unfortunately, it appears that, that that spiritual political victory is short-lived because in just a short time, the empire reverts back to their previous ways. Even if God didn't rescue these three, even if they were thrown into the fire and perished, even if Babylon never briefly turned to God, this would still have been a success story. Because their success, like we talked about last week, didn't come from their ability to transform the culture. Their success didn't come by their ability to positively influence any Babylonians at all. They were successful because they resisted. They were successful because they didn't conform. They were successful because when people saw their faithful lives, they knew that something was different. We talked about that in the adult class this morning. It didn't mean that they liked what they were doing, but they could tell that something was different. It's our God 
who is the one who saves them from the fire. God is the one who's at work in the hearts of the Babylonians, even in the hearts of King Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings who are going to rule over Israel. We need to be people who are able to live faithful lives regardless of the world around us and trust that God is going to take care of the rest. Sometimes it means that he will rescue his people from the fire. But sometimes he won't. And that's okay. Because faithfulness to God does not always earn peace and prosperity. It does not always bring about dramatic cultural change. It doesn't always mean that the things in our life are going to work out. But this world is not our home. Babylon is not the home of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In light of their faithful example, I, I want to turn our focus for the rest of our time on, on us. When culture and Christ come into conflict, what, what should you and I be doing? I wish there was an answer that meant that if we would do these things, the things in our life would be easy. We'd be able to turn our world upside down, but we don't have that kind of power. Only God does. Instead, all we can do in the meantime is rise above our culture and to live faithful lives, regardless of what's going on. And I want to leave us with a couple of tools, some ideas to help us think about what this might look like in our lives. The first thing, if we're going to be like Daniel, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, is that a decision to stand for the truth is not made when you're brought to the fire. The decision to be faithful is not made when we begin to face public opposition, when trouble comes. A decision to be faithful people is made long before. For these three, we read in chapter 1 that it was made when they were youths, when they were building and protecting their spiritual foundations. Are we building and protecting our spiritual foundations in preparation for our walk to the fire? Are we helping others build and prepare for their walk, which might lead to fire? You might have heard me talk about it, or you might have heard anyone talk about it. You might have heard the kids in church this morning, but we have a large group of young kids who need to know Jesus. And we really need you to help us show them. Because the decision to be made a decision to be faithful isn't made when the heat is on. It's made when you pray together as a family before meals. It's made when you show love to someone who you don't know. It's made when you show love to someone who you do know and you think they don't deserve it. We need to be faithful now instead of waiting. A second thing that we can keep in mind to try to rise above the culture is that our lives need to answer to God first, to let our faithful lives speak for themselves. When these three were challenged by the Babylonians, they were challenged because their faithful lives were visible in what they were doing in the world. They were working in government jobs, but they were being faithful. They were living lives among the Babylonian culture, but they were being faithful. We see Daniel do the exact same thing later in this very book when, he, when his adver adversaries see his heinous act that he does on a daily basis. 
What was it? He was, he was praying. How horrible. Just praying. Turning to God on a regular basis. Faithful living. Are we answering to God with our lives? Are we declaring God with our lives? Earlier I mentioned the need for us to be using God's name like in the name of these three men in, in our, our scripture this morning. What would it look like if you lived in such a way that the people in your workplace, the, the people in your communities would want to remove God's name from your mouth? In Babylon, this gets an adverse, adverse reaction. People coming into their land literally using God's name in their names. We're not seeking an adverse reaction, but I just want us to think, is God's name in your life, or has it been removed? Has it been removed by other people, or maybe has it, has it been removed by you? Whatever you could do to explicitly declare God's name to the people in your life, maybe it's time we should do it. It's time to use God's name. Because when God's name is used for God's purposes by God's people, it has power. The prayer of the righteous has awesome power as it is working. We need to let our lives answer to God first. The last thing I want to bring before us this morning is a question. You know, I like, I like a, a good question. Are we too comfortable in Babylon? There are a lot of scary things that are happening in this world around us. If only we could go back to, to the good old days, right? I'm not that old, so I can't say that. But I'm sure that they were exiled Israelites who didn't enjoy being in Babylon, and they were longing for the good old days. If only we could go back to the promised land where we had a land flowing with milk and honey. But let's not forget that the reason they were in exile is because in the good old days, they were living lives without God. This world is not our home. Stop longing for the good old days. I certainly believe that God is able to transform this world. I certainly believe that our God is able to stand in the fire with us and lead us to safety but first, we need to be people who are faithful enough to walk to the fire in the first place. To live regular, ordinary, quiet, faithful lives to God. But, as you and I know, there's nothing ordinary about our Christian life. There isn't anything ordinary about what Jesus has done for you and for me on the cross. If you're not a Christian today, if you've not been baptized, you need to know that there is a place that is better than this one that is waiting for us. And I can't comprehend everything, everything that it's going to conclude, include. I can't comprehend what it's going to look like, but I know that we'll be at home with our Father in heaven. And sin is keeping people from that. Let your sins be washed away by believing and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Your resistance to this world is futile if you don't have Jesus. If you are a Christian today, I want to continue to remind you to not lose heart. 
Opposition is arising. And the weight of the world might seem like you have to solve all the world's problems. We have to fix this. We can't let this happen to us. But this is not our fight. Our fight is not of flesh and blood. Our fight, our resistance, is with the culture as we are faithful and to let God take care of the rest. If you need prayers or encouragement in this fight, if you need to confess sins in your life, to throw off their weight, we'd love to pray with you and for you. I want to leave you with this. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fire. I believe that he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we cannot be a people who serve other gods or worship the things that our culture has upheld. If you have a need, whether it's here in person or if it's on Facebook this morning, we invite you to make that known. If not right now, then later this week, and I mean it, make it known. We need Jesus. If you have a need this morning, make it known as we stand and as we sing. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am strong.